Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Isn't that what we need tonight? A fire that will burn up this pride of ours, this selfishness of ours, this vanity of ours, this worldliness of ours. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today, we're listening to a sermon by R.A. Tory, preached somewhere in Asia in the early 1900s while he was on a tour. Uh, we're going to jump into it. Troy, how are you doing? It, this is uh, this is Valentine's Day week. But, uh, Troy and I are recording this right before Valentine's, but listeners will be hearing this right after Valentine's. Do they do Valentine's there in Indonesia? They do not. They do not do Valentine's Day in Indonesia, but they are having a day off for their election. So there is still a lot going on. It's actually a very busy time to be in Indonesia. However, if you are listening to this the day after Valentine's Day or any time that you are listening to this, you're going back through the catalog and listening to these episodes, perhaps. Uh, if you want to, we have an episode out on St. Valentine that we did a couple years ago and the, why there is a Valentine's Day and how we went from a martyr who died for Jesus to like a floating baby candy with wings and, and hearts and yeah. candy. So you should go look up that episode sometime. It's kind of fun. Um, but yeah, so you're, you're correct that this is right after Valentine's Day on uh, when it'll be going out. But we have, my wife and I, we have our own plans for the weekend to do something fun. That's what I was asking. Um, yeah, do, do you do yeah. Valentine's Day there? Yeah, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get some time. I got a friend of ours to babysit the kids, so we're going to have a, f- a few oh. hours to go do something pleasant and out there. Probably just be dinner, but, it, you know, it's something at least, so that'll, sure. that'll be nice. What about you, sir? What are you guys going to be doing? I don't know. We have a newborn, so that kind of limits our range <laughs> of, uh, you yeah. know, because she's still feeding. So we got like a two-hour window. We might try. Well, what we'll probably do is take baby with us, and then we have a, a three-year-old that we'll, we'll have a sitter for. Um, yeah. But we'll do something. Our church is having, they do like a, a Valentine couple's dinner with child care and such. And so okay. we'll, we'll do that, no doubt. That's always a good time. Uh, By the way, Joel, I, I forgot what I'm doing on Valentine's Day morning. I'm recording uh, the oh, actual yeah. Valentine's Day morning. I'm recording a deep dive with you if our calendars sync up well. So, I'm looking lovely forward to listener, it. that's our Valentine's Day present. It won't, be, it won't be ready on Valentine's Day, but perhaps you will finally have the Typing Rebellion. If you've been listening to our show for a while, you've been hearing us tease this for like a year. So, sorry about that, but at least it's now getting recorded. So. Yeah, yeah, and uh, as always, Patreon listeners will get first dibs on uh, on listening to that. Uh, it'll eventually come out to the main feed, but we're looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm happy to say if you are listening and you're going, oh, thank goodness, that thing they've been talking about for a very long time, especially if you're a Patreon, it's finally coming together. It is, and the good news is the next Steve Dive is already well into way. I already know what I'm, what the subject of where we're going next, and I've already begun to process that out. So that one won't take yeah. nearly as long. It's also not nearly as difficult, not difficult, a subject because typing rebellion is not difficult it's just enormous uh whereas the next subject will be much more easy to follow yeah so keep a ear out for that in 2034 and we'll get yeah. that uh, we'll get that that's to you a, asap that's a correct that's a correct uh deep dive prediction there okay so uh joel we had some positive responses to the show not even really even like a necessarily like it wasn't actually a response to the show these were not listens uh but a person on twitter named cody said hey my favorite podcast right now is 
And a few of you were kind enough to write in Revive Thoughts. We really appreciate that. Aaron V wrote in either Revive Thoughts with the Revive Thoughts. He tagged us there. Or the Baptist podcast, broadcast, broadcast, sorry about that, guys, with at 1689 Broadcast. So I, I don't, I'm not familiar with their work, so I'll have to go check them out, right? They're named next to us, so they, they must be pretty good, I guess, right? And then another gentleman named Nate was also in the thread, and he gave us a little shout out. He said, either Haunted Cosmos or Revive Thoughts. Thank you, Nate, for mentioning us alongside the uh, the wonderful Haunted Cosmos, which is vaunted and loved. And we had uh, one of those guys on our show, Ben, a few months ago. They're wonderful. So thank you very much, guys, for mentioning us. If you're ever out there on the internet and somebody's saying, hey, what's your favorite podcast? We really appreciate it when you mention us. Uh, this is not the first time it's happened. It's happened before, but it is always wonderful. And and very, it's very nice. It just may, may I see that and I go, oh, somebody's thinking of us. That's awesome. It really makes me feel good. Okay, R.A. Tori. Now, now, long-time listeners, OG listeners, may remember an episode on R.A. Tori we did over three years ago. Uh, only one that we've done, and we're happy to return to him. A little bit of a controversial figure, as, as usual. A little bit more charismatic than we typically do on the show. But we're excited to bring this sermon to you here. Since it's been a hot second... We're going to do a quick overview on his life in general, and Troy's going to fill in some more details, but R.A. Tory stands for Reuben, like the sandwich, Archer, like the medieval military unit, and Tory, just for Tory, R.A. Reuben Archer no, Tory. Tory, like the, the Whigs and the Tories, everyone knows from the, the 1700s, those were the political parties, right? Not on my radar. I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking it was about, so, but okay. thought it was so obvious. Uh, okay, never mind then. Yeah, Tory like the uh, political party of the s- <laughs> 1500s? Where, where, are we, where are we at in history? Well, actually, it's not spelled like that. It's from the 1700s, but it's spelled differently. But, you know, it sounds like the same name. Gotcha. R.A. Tory, born in New Jersey. So this is an American guy. 1856 was his birth date. Uh, comes from a Christian home. Comes from a wealthy home. Of bankers and lawyers, uh, so they grew up uh, not needing anything. Uh, Tory was influenced by his family's faith quite a bit, and throughout his life, he mentions and emphasizes his mother's faith and that impact on his life. Tory talks about being felt to be called a Christian very early on in his life. He felt that God wanted him to be a preacher. He didn't really want to be a preacher, but he felt that God was calling him to be a preacher. So he went through a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a rebellious towards God phase of he uh, he doesn't doesn't quite want to go where God wants, you know, where he, where he feel is feeling God is wanting him to go here. So putting off the idea of committing to Christ. He was a pretty shy young man. This all changed uh, a little bit around when he was 15 years old and he went to Yale. And while he was at Yale, he went off and lived the worldly student lifestyle that sometimes happens when people go off to college. Uh, But while he was living that life and doing the party scene, he had one night a dream that his mom came to him and said he needed to preach the gospel. Now, later on, when he tells the story, he finds out from his mom that she remembered waking up on the same night of the story and praying for him in the middle of the night. So it seems that whatever was going on, it, it was somehow waking up his mom and causing him to him, her to pray for him too, which is not the first time we've actually heard something like this happen. It's, it's actually uh, happened on the show another time, forgetting the name of the guy who it was, but it, it did happen. I do remember it. And uh, Tori uh, does, he's, he's waking up, his mom is in this dream. And when he says he fully wakes up, he suddenly has this unknown, never before seen desire 
to kill himself. He suddenly feels like he doesn't want to live anymore and that uh, it's just a, a just an intense desire. He's never even remotely felt this way, and yet in the middle of the night after that dream, he felt it very strongly. He said the desire was so strong, it felt like he was overpowering him. And so he just immediately dropped to his knees and began praying and prayed out, Oh God, deliver me from this burden. I'll even preach. And as soon as he said those words, boom, it was the entire wrestling, struggling session was immediately over. All desire was gone, and he felt just a deep inner peace that he had never felt before. And that was it. I, we didn't have a whole lot of other details on it. That's, that's the story. That's where it, it all changes from that moment. It really is interesting to me because I feel like, um, unlike some people who just don't believe in God, or maybe they were exposed to him, or they just were ca- caught in sin, for Tori, it really seemed to be uh, the preaching. Like, I'll do anything but preach. Fine, God, I will even preach. It, it's almost kind of reminding me of Jonah. Like, he's running away from this one thing, the thing that he's not wanting to do, and that is preaching. Uh, now he goes off after this. He finishes at Yale. He goes to Yale Divinity School. He gets his you know degree in preaching and all that. He also had begun to start trying to get into church and to speak with people and evangelizing, but he was very, very shy still. His first few times speaking, he basically sat on a chair and with his hands, from the way I can understand it, his hands underneath the chair, like gripping the you know, the seat of the chair, he would share the gospel sitting there like that because he was so nervous. And I, I, I don't know, I don't want to criticize him. Maybe it's very effective, but I can't imagine that was super effective, but I'm sure it was memorable. And I, I got to say that's, that's so I, as speaking of somebody who can get a little bit shy speaking in public, I can, I can relate to that, to that pain feeling. And I, I respect Tori for it. In 1878, D.L. Moody came into town, and Tory got to hear him speak, and it had a really profound impact on Tory, and really kind of lit a fire for him for the lost to hear the gospel. Not long after that, he met his wife, Clara, while pastoring a church there, and they went off to Europe, where uh, R.A. Tory would train universities there. This is late 1800s, so the liberal theology movement is gaining a lot of speed a lot of prestigious theological universities are becoming very liberal and secular during this transitional era during this era and R.A. Torrey is a big opponent of this transition he is very much against the liberal theology movement Uh, after studying there for a little bit he comes back to America has a few different preaching jobs there and is really impacted by George Mueller who has written a book by this time and this book that George Mueller wrote uh, really inspires R.A. Torrey to take his own life in the same direction that, that Mueller took his. At this time, Moody was now then ready to open up this Bible school that he had been talking about and planning for years, and he needed somebody to run it, and R.A. Torrey's name was recommended. And so after meeting with Torrey, D.L. Moody offered him the job, and for the next 20 years, Tory was the superintendent of the Bible school that uh, D.L. Moody founded. Now, Tory is much more charismatic than many of the speakers we have. He's not the most charismatic speaker we've ever featured on Revive Thoughts. We had A.B. Simpson, I think, that would, and, and Watchman Nee and John Sung. So we have certainly people from a broad theological spectrum on Revive Thoughts. And to be honest, that's intentional. We think that the greatest sermons ever preached are not preached specifically in one theology camp, but that all of the camps have different speakers that have had a profound impact on church history, and we don't really tend to judge them uh, so much as we want you, the listener, to listen to them and, you know, make the decisions for yourself. But I say all that to say, Ari Tori also was reformed a bit in his disposition. Like, he had been raised that way, so he was 
uh, very firm in a lot of the things he believed, which makes which is being explained because of this next saga. He's going to get into a battle that I have never heard of. We've done multiple multiples of episodes on D.L. Moody, and this was the first time I'd ever read about this, and it was very interesting and kind of creepy. So in the late 1800s, Chicago was being divided by a man who had come to town claiming to be a divine healer. His last name is Dowie. He's calling him Dowie for this episode. And D.L. Moody was on one side of this divide with Tori. And on the other side was this man named Dowie. And Dowie claimed Moody and Tori lacked the faith they needed to see the healings that he was seeing at his tent revivals. And it was causing a big split in the churches in Chicago. Churches were either having kind of D.L. Moody and R.A. Tori speak at them, or they were having this Dowie speak at them. And it was just causing a lot of issues. In 1898... He claimed, this Dowie guy, claimed to have a letter by Tori claiming that Tori was begging Dowie to heal his daughter and that he had granted his request and healed Tori's daughter. This letter was fake, and Moody called Dowie out in his next sermon. He basically was like, hey, sorry, Dowie, I said, I did Dowie out. And was basically like, what are you doing? You're a fraud. You're a charlatan. You, you're just making stuff up now, and what you're doing is really gross. Well... Moody said all this about Dowie, and Dowie responded by saying, you're attacking a man of God. You're attacking uh, somebody who's do- speaking in God's word. And because of that, I pronounce a curse on you, Moody, and you're going to die. And unfortunately, Moody did die less than a year later. Moody was only 62. However, if you do know much about Dale Moody, you would know that he was, um, I don't know how to say this in a, like a politically correct way, but he was not a healthy weight. We'll put it that way. Uh, I don't think that Moody died because Dowie cursed him. I'll just put it that way. I don't think that was related to it. I think Moody was just had always lived a life of travel, had worked really hard. And like many of these guys, like John Calvin, who also died very young, like uh, Jay Gresham Machen, who also died before his time, like C.I.S. Like, not C.I.S. but like so many others, uh, though, who had died before their time. I just think he had worked himself too hard and was was time to go. But it did cause problems um, because of that, because this Dowie guy basically pronounced that he had killed D.L. Moody with his curse, and that's what happens when you stand up to him. Now, if you have more interest in the actual death of D.L. Moody, uh, Joel and I have recorded uh, his final sermon episode. Uh, it's a it's a bit of an older one. Joel and I were physically together when we recorded it, and we actually walked out to the place where he recorded his last sermon. Granted, we did that in the middle of the night on a snowy day, but if you want to go listen to that, you should go way back in the archives and look for D.L. Moody final sermon. You know, it'd be a fun uh, revived conversation topic. Uh, well, I don't know. This actually might get us in trouble a lot, but I do find it <laughs> interesting that there's always been kind of like. Uh, religious crazy people throughout history you know (laughs) like like delusional people that use religion and god as their justification for doing very crazy and unbiblical things that uh it's wild i mean i i feel like people make fun of that stuff and see that stuff in today's day and age but uh throughout history it's it's always been there and it's gotten a lot of people killed i mean you look at the Was it Taiping Rebellion in China? Well, yeah, we're we're literally covering a giant yeah. episode. Not on on. You're right. It would make a really good revived conversation of just kind of covering this figure in history. You know, we're talking about we on our show we do world's greatest sermons, like the history's greatest sermons. But I mean, uh, these charlatans are there, and they've been doing right. the world's worst sermons, but they do them well. <laughs> I love um, it. The world's worst sermons, but they do them. They, but they do a good job at them. You know. Yeah, we'd have to be careful there. I could see us getting in trouble. 
We could, but it would be fun. I like that idea. I'm putting, I put it on our list next to a few others. I think it's a good idea. Gotcha. Uh, okay, so Dowie uh, claimed to have judged and killed Moody here, and Tori's response to this is to preach against Dowie likewise. Uh, Dowie then produces more notes supposedly by Tori, and the drama continues. So now it looks like Dowie has kind of shifted his... his uh, aggression towards R.A. Tory instead of Moody. Thankfully, in 1901, Dowie moves out of the Chicago area. He moves away, and it seems like kind of took the feud with him there. There was He was no longer there to uh, to stir up the pot, so uh, that the drama kind of died out on its own. Tory uh, would eventually begin travels all over the world, uh, including one that went through Asia, that produced a sermon that we're going to listen to here in a little bit. He also spent a good amount of time in Australia. He had a former student that began a ministry in Australia and invited him to come and speak there. And after years of fighting in Chicago and the death of his mentor, Moody, he was happy to uh, to go out there and get away for a little bit. Tori would end up traveling back and forth a lot in his kind of final years. And when I say final years... Um, I mean, it's the last 30 years of his life. So, you know, if that can be considered your final years... Uh, however, he did this very specific tour through Asia and Australia, where the current sermon you are about to listen to comes from. This tour was very effective at bringing many people to Christ. Specifically, uh, he mentioned sermons in Shanghai and in a city in Japan, although he didn't specify which one in his notes. And then across New Zealand and Australia, there were just a lot of people that were really stirred. And he, he mentioned that they counted, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of converts at different locations this tour took him uh, like about two years to go through. And back then, remember, they're traveling by boat, no airplanes. Uh, I can't tell if he traveled by family. However, he did have a really good relationship, it seems, with his family. One note that's really interesting to me that you don't actually see all that often. A lot of times we don't really know how the sons and family members of different people turn out. We do know that Charles Spurgeon's sons both went into the ministry. We, we've covered them. So there are people in Hudson Taylor's family did as well. But this is really interesting. R.A. Torrey had a son that he named R.A. Torrey II, and he went on to do ministry in East Asia. His gr next son, so this would be R.A. Torrey, the original's grandson, R.A. Torrey III, also went into ministry in Asia. And uh, his fourth, now this person is named Ben Torrey. I don't know if he's just not R.A. Torrey IV or like, you know, a younger brother, or they finally stopped doing that at that point. I'm not sure. But he actually has also started a ministry over in Asia. They're attempting to reach the, the lost for uh, Christ in North Korea, as far as I can tell. I didn't do like a deep dive on this ministry, so I'm not, I'm not in any way endorsing it, but it is it is kind of neat to see that R.A. must have had a decent relationship with his family because we're four generations in and they're still following the Lord as far as I can tell, um, which is, that's pretty cool. So yeah, that's, that's something you don't always get to see, but it's neat to see the fruit of that, uh, that he had a good relationship. So with that in mind, I kind of think maybe he did travel with his family. We could go on and effect, uh, and go on and on about the effect of his preaching tours. He was very, very influential and something we didn't really get to cover in this episode, but there's a big revival that's known to the church history uh, called the Welsh Revival that happens in the year 1904. And Tory had just preached through that area, just, I mean, literally on the heels of this revival. So many credit him as being kind of the, the match that starts that revival. But however, to sum up this life of this incredible man, and I do recommend listening to our other episode on him to catch up even more on him. 
Um, but it's amazing to remember what I what really stood out to me listening to this was or going through this was that he started by rejecting Christ and specifically saying, I won't go preach. He was too scared to preach in public without holding on to the back of a chair. He was just, this was the last place he wanted to be. And here at the end of his life, he's just going around the world, preaching Christ to hundreds and thousands of people everywhere he can um, and impacting multiples and multiples of generations of families and people all around the world. I mean, think of just how many people went and heard him speak, became Christian, their children become Christian, maybe their grandchildren become Christian, and how many people are just affected by one person going on one of these speaking tours. And... When asked at the end of his life, you know, what, what got him through it? How did he have time for it all? What, what made him do and put himself through all this and all that traveling, all that stuff? He said, and I quote, I love to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, Matthew 3.11. One night years ago, I was sitting at my desk in my study late at night, and the work of the day was done. There was a great deal of confusion about my study table, for I had just moved that day and had not had time to rearrange my papers. The work of the day being done, I fell into a reverie. And as I came out of that reverie, I found myself gently waving back and forth in my right hand a little four-page leaflet. I do not know how it got into my hand. I suppose I took it off of the table. But I don't even know how it got onto the table, for I had never seen it before. I looked at that leaflet, and I noticed these words across the top of the leaflet in large print. Wanted. A baptism with fire. It immediately grabbed my attention. I said, this is precisely what I do want. If there is anybody on this earth that needs fire, it is I for I was born and had grown up cold as an iceberg. So I had the leaflet. There was not much in the leaflet that impressed me except the one text, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And that not only impressed me, it kept ringing in my mind and heart by day and by night. I could not get away from it. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. The following Saturday evening, when I went to a little gathering for prayer here at my church, I said to the janitor of the church when the prayer meeting was over, the promise says he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. A sweet smile passed over the janitor's face, and there was something about his look which made me think, well, the janitor seems to know all about it. I wonder if he's got something his pastor has not got. During the days of the next week, when I sat down in my study, when I walked the streets, that kept ringing in my ears. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Thursday night came, and at the close of my day's work, I knelt down before God and asked him for a text or for a subject for Sunday evening's sermon. A brother from London was going to preach for me in the morning. The only text I could see in the whole Bible was, He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And I said, Father, I'm not to preach on a Sunday morning. That's a Sunday morning text, and I don't preach in the morning. Mr. Ingalls is going to preach then. I generally preach in the morning to Christians and to the unsaved in the evening. I want an evening text, but I could not see anything but just that one text. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Well, I said, Father, if that is the text you want me to preach on, evening or morning, I will preach it. But I want to know. Just then, there came looming out of the Bible two other texts, and both of those texts had fire in them. While I was on my knees, God just opened the three texts and I had my sermon. 
The next Sunday night, I went to my church and preached that sermon. And when I had finished it, I said, now all the friends who want to be baptized with the Holy Ghost and fire tonight, and all who want to be saved, come downstairs. The rooms downstairs were jammed. And when all who replied to the invitation had found room, I asked all who wanted to be baptized with the Holy Ghost and fire to go into the kindergarten room. And those who wished to be saved to go into another room, the inquiry room, and the rest to stay where they were. They began to go into both rooms. I went into the kindergarten room where the people were sitting in the little bits of kindergarten chairs, so closely packed that I literally had to step over their heads to get to the platform. Oh, what a time we had in that room that night. And when I came out, I asked my assistant who was in charge of the inquiry room what sort of time he had. And he said, the spirit of God was there and many people came into the light. I asked Professor Towner, the choir master, who was left in charge of the third meeting, composed of those who had not entered either one of the two rooms. And he said, we had no meeting at all. I couldn't say a word. The people got right down on their knees before God and talked to him. I hope God will bless the word the same way tonight. I believe he will. You will find the first of the three fires in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water for repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. That is the first of the three fires, the baptism with fire. What does it mean? Now, we know what it means to be baptized with water. We've seen that. But what does it mean to be baptized with fire? You will get your answer by asking two things. First, what is fire said to do in the Bible? And second, what happened to the apostles at Pentecost when they were baptized with the Holy Ghost and fire? The first thing the Bible says that fire does is fire reveals. In 1 Corinthians 3, 13, we read, Every man's work will be made manifest, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the first thing that a baptism with fire does is to reveal what a man really is, to show us to ourselves as God sees us. I remember the night before I preached that sermon, late on Saturday night, after the sermon was all arranged, I got down and said, Heavenly Father, I think I have a sermon for tomorrow night but I don't believe I've got that of which the sermon speaks. I'm gonna preach on the baptism with the Holy Ghost and fire, and how can I preach on it if I have not had it? Now, in order that I may preach an honest sermon, baptize me with fire right now. God heard that prayer. And the first thing that came to pass was that I had such a revelation of myself as I have never had before in all my life. I had never dreamed that there was so much pride, so much vanity, so much personal ambition, so much downright meanness in my heart and life as I saw that night. And men and women, if you get a baptism with fire, I believe one of the first things that comes to you will be a revelation of yourself as God sees you. Is that not just what we need? A revelation of ourselves today that will spare us the awful humiliation of the revelation of self on that day when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The second thing that fire does, fire refines or purifies. In Malachi 3 verses 1 through 3, we are told of the purifying power of fire. There is nothing that purifies like fire. Water will not cleanse as fire does. Suppose I have a piece of gold and there is some filth on the outside of it. How can I get it off? I can wash it off with water. 
But suppose the filth is inside it. How will you get it out? There is only one way. Throw it into the fire. And men and women, if the filth is on the outside, it can be washed away with the water of the word. But the trouble that is the filth that is on the inside, what we need is the fire of the Holy Ghost penetrating to the inmost depths of our being. Burning, 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 cleansing. What a refining came to the apostles on that day of Pentecost. How full of self-seeking had they been right up to the very last supper. At the last supper, they had a dispute as to who should be the first in the kingdom of heaven. But after Pentecost, they no longer thought of self, but of Christ. How weak and cowardly they had been right up to the crucifixion. They all forsook him and fled. Peter denied him at the accusation of a servant maid with oaths and curses. But after the day of Pentecost, that time that Peter cursed and swore and denied Christ when the servant maid accused him of being a follower of Jesus, faced the very counsel that condemned him and said, if we this day be examined of the good deed done by the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known for you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. Ah, friends, cleansing is a very slow process by ordinary means, but a baptism with fire does marvels in a moment. In the third place, the Bible teaches us that fire consumes. In Ezekiel 24, 11 to 13, we are told of the consuming power of fire, the fire of judgment that will consume the filth and dross of Jerusalem. And the baptism of fire consumes, in fact, it cleanses by consuming. It burns up all dross, all vanity, all self-righteousness, all personal ambition, all ungovernable temper. We once had at the Bible Institute of Chicago a young woman who was much that a Christian should not be. When we heard she was coming, all of us in authority thought she would never ought to have come to the Bible Institute. I thought so when I heard she was coming, for I had known her in the school from which she came, and I knew she was one of the most unmanageable scholars they ever had in the school. She was stubborn, willful, proud, quick-tempered, boisterous, loud, and pretty much everything a girl ought not to be. When I heard she was coming to the Bible Institute, I said, so-and-so, coming to the Bible Institute? What in the world does she want at the Bible Institute? But her uncle was one of the best friends the Institute ever had. And so out of consideration for her uncle, we admitted her. Now, we require every student in that Bible Institute that some definite work to save the lost should go hand in hand with Bible study. For Bible study, unless it is accompanied with actual work for the salvation of souls, will dry up a man's soul quicker than almost anything else. We required the young woman to go into the tenements, the homes of the poor and the outcast. One afternoon, this girl had been visiting Milton Avenue and Townsend Street, two of the poorest streets in Chicago. After a time, she became very tired with climbing up and down the stairs and going in and out of the filthy houses. And instead of returning to the Institute, she walked on in a very rebellious frame of mind and went down to Lakeshore Drive, the finest avenue in Chicago, along the shore of the lake. And as she passed by those magnificent mansions there, she looked up at them with an eye that danced with pleasure and said, this is what I like. 
I've had enough of Milton Avenue. I've had enough of climbing stairs and going into tenements. This is what I like and this is what I am going to have. She came back to the Institute and went straight to her room, still in a very bitter and rebellious frame of mind. The tea bell rang before the battle was over and she went to the table and took hers and sat down. And there at the tea table, the fire of God fell right where that girl was sitting. She sprang from her seat and rushed over to a friend at the other table and threw her arms around her and exclaimed, I will become a volunteer for Africa. And that fire of God and in a moment burned and burned and burned until that young woman was so changed, her actions were so changed, her views of life, her tastes, her ambitions, her very face was so changed in a moment that when her old friend saw her and heard her, they could hardly believe their own ears and eyes. Later on, she went back to that same school down in Massachusetts where she had been such a hindrance and with burning words, poured out her heart to the girls there and with mighty power, led them to the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Isn't that what we need tonight? A fire that will burn up this pride of ours, this selfishness of ours, this vanity of ours, this worldliness of ours. Burn up all these things that hinder the world from coming to Christ because we make men think that Christianity is unreal? You women with unconverted husband, isn't that what you need? A baptism with fire, transforming your life and clothing you with beauty so that your husband will say, I must have what my wife has got. In the next place, fire illuminates. Oftentimes when in Chicago, I look off towards the northwest of the city, suddenly I see the heavens light up and then grow dark again. And they are illuminated once more and then darkened. The great foundry doors had been opened and shut and opened and shut. And this light in the heavens was the glow from the furnaces. Fire illuminates, but no fire illuminates like the baptism with the Holy Ghost and fire. When a man is baptized with the Holy Ghost and fire, truth that was dark to him before becomes instantly as bright as day. Passages in the Bible that he could not understand before become simple as ABC and every page of God's holy word glows with heavenly light. A baptism with fire will do more to take the infidelity and skepticism and false doctrine out of a man than any university education. How many a young fellow comes out of a theological education more than half an infidel? But the great day comes when that half infidel preacher is baptized with the Holy Ghost and a fire and his doubts and his questionings and his criticisms go to the winds. How many an untaught or half-taught man has so wonderful an acquaintance with the truth of God that men who are scholars sit at his feet with profound atonement because he has been illuminated with the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire. Take the case of the girl. Again, I was away when the event I described happened. And the first thing I heard when I returned was what had happened with her. And I was going from the men's side of the institute and was passing between the church and the women's end when this young girl turned into the gate and met me. She looked up into my face and said, Oh, Professor Tory, have you heard? Yes, I have heard. I said, I have heard what has happened. And then she just began to pour out her soul. She fairly danced on the sidewalk when she told me. And I knew at once what it meant to dance before the Lord. Then she closed about this way. One of the best things about it is the Bible is a new book. The Bible used to be just the stupidest book I'd ever read and I didn't believe it was the word of God at all. I did believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ because your lectures compelled me, but the Bible was a stupid book. But oh, 
Now, God is showing me such wonderful things in the Bible. Now, be honest. Are there not some of you tonight that profess to be Christians to whom the Bible is a stupid book? If you would tell the honest truth, would you not rather read a novel than the Bible? You do read the Bible because you think you must, but you get no enjoyment out of it. What you need is a baptism with the Holy Ghost and fire, and that would make the Bible a new book, and glory would shine from every page. The next thing that fire does is fire makes it warm. It makes it glow. You stand before a furnace door, behind which is a glowing fire. You have your hand, a bar of iron. It's cold and black and forbidding, and there's no beauty in it. But you take that cold, dark, forbidding bar of iron, and you open the furnace door and thrust it into the glowing fire. Soon, it is warm. Then it becomes red hot and glows with marvelous beauty, and you have the cold bar of iron glowing with fire. You and I are cold. Oh, how cold we are. And the Lord Jesus takes us and he plunges us into the fire of the Holy Spirit and we begin to glow warm. And soon we glow, we glow with, with love to God, glow with love to Christ, glow with love to the truth, glow with love for perishing souls. Men and women, the great need of the day is men and women on fire. Brethren, that is what we need in the pulpit, ministers on fire. What cold men most of us preachers are, orthodox enough it may be, and we present the most solemn truth with great force of reason and great beauty of rhetoric and most convincing eloquence, and our audiences sit there and admire our strong preaching, but they don't repent of their sins. Why not? Because we are not on fire. We convince the intellect, but we don't melt the heart. But put a minister who is on fire in the pulpit. Wesley was such a man. Whitfield was such a man. Put a man on fire in the pulpit in the audience will melt. But we need that kind of people in the choir as well. What beautiful choirs we have nowadays when they almost sing like angels and people sit there admiring them, but no one's converted from their songs. But when we get a man on fire to sing, or a woman on fire to sing, or a choir on fire to sing, something is brought to pass. That's what we need in our Sunday school classes. We need a young man or a young woman to teach a Sunday school class and they know the lesson capitally and study all the latest help and take the lesson tremendously interesting. But the boys and girls and men and women in their classes are not converted because their teachers are not on fire. Uh, men and women of London, they need in London more than anything else tonight. A baptism with fire on the minister, a baptism with fire on the elders, a baptism with fire on the deacons, a baptism on fire on the choir, a baptism on fire on the Sunday school, a baptism on fire on the personal workers, and a baptism with fire upon the men and women in the congregation. We sang a hymn just now, praying that the fire of God might fall in Mildmay Conference Hall tonight. If it does, men and women, if it does, London will be shaken a man takes me to his factory he says this machinery is the best in the world he takes me on down into the engine room he says look at that great engine it is so many horsepower and there is power in that engine to move every great wheel in this great factory and then i go back to the factory and i look around and there is nothing happening it's very strange i say didn't you tell me that this was the best machinery in the world for this purpose and that the engine downstairs could move every wheel in the factory well, I notice all the connections are made 
and everything is in gear and the lever is carried the right way, but there is not a wheel moving in all the factory. What's the matter? Well, don't you know, he says, come downstairs and I'll show you. And he takes me down again to the engine room, to the engine, and he throws open the door and says, look in there, and lo, there is no fire in the firebox. I go off to the railway. There's a great engine standing on the rails, and I'm told it's the finest engine that was ever turned out from the locomotive works. It could drag a heavily freighted train up 100-foot grade. The engine has been coupled onto about a half a dozen unloaded cars. I look at the engine and say, what did you tell me? It can draw a 100... It can draw a heavily loaded train up a hundred foot grade. <clears throat> what did you tell me? Can it draw a heavily loaded train up hundred foot grade? Then will you please explain something to me? That engine only has six empty cars behind it. The coupling is made, the throttle is open, and it's not moving. Cannot pull a car, and yet you say it can pull a hundred. What's the matter? And I am taken to the engine. And the door of the furnace is thrown open, and when I look in, I see that there is no fire in the firebox. That's what's the matter. Friends, I go into churches today, and what beautiful organization I see. What magnificent architecture, what eloquent preaching I hear, what marvelous singing. And yet, not a wheel in the whole institution is moving for God. What's the matter? There's no fire in the firebox. What we need today is the fire of God in the firebox, and thank God the promise is he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. Uh, and one more thing about this fire. Fire spreads. Nothing spreads like fire. I remember hearing some years ago, before I went to live in Chicago, about an old Irish woman who had a little shanty in the city with a little shed in the back of it in which she kept a cow. And one night she was milking her cow and the cow suddenly kicked and knocked over her lantern and that lantern fell on a wisp of straw which caught fire and that shed which caught fire and set the shed afire and the shed set the shanty on fire and the shanty next to it caught it on fire and the shanty next to that and the one next to that and soon the fire leaped over the south branch of the Chicago River to the east side and on and on it swept and in 48 hours it had cleared an area one mile wide and three miles long and there were but two buildings left in all of that section of Chicago fire spreads if a fire is kindled here tonight, it will sweep over all London, all over Great Britain and Ireland. That night I spoke of, at the beginning of my sermon, we had a stranger from London in Chicago who came to hear me preach. Who came to hear me preach. He came downstairs in response to my invitation and he told us, I am just in Chicago today from London and I want this baptism of fire. And he got it. When he left the church, he went to his room and sat down and wrote a letter to the Bible class of which he was a member in London. The teacher read it to the class, and the fire of God came into that class. And in about two weeks after he had sent the letter, he got word from London that the fire which fell in Chicago had been kindled in that church in London. Nothing spreads like fire. Do you see how bad we need this fire tonight? The second fire that you will find in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 and 15. Every man's work will be made manifest for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will try every man's work 
of what sort it is. If any man's work is burned, he suffers loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as by fire. The second fire is the fire of judgment, testing our works at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, you notice that the judgment here is not the judgment concerning our salvation. These are saved people whose works are burnt up. All the work we do for Christ is to be put to the test, is to be put to the severest kind of test, the fire test. And friends, there is a great deal the Church of Christ is doing professedly for Christ, and a great deal individual Christians are doing that will never stand the fire test. Do you think that these church fairs and bazaars and all that sort of tomfoolery by which the Church of Christ is brought down to the level of the dime museum into which so many professed Christians are putting their best energies, do you think that these will stand the fire test? Never. They will go up in smoke. You may be saved, but you will lose your reward. You will be saved as if by fire. A great deal of work that is good, but not done to God's glory, but for personal ambition. The good sermon, perfectly orthodox, severely logical, beautifully rhetorical. The sermon that even good people applaud, but that is preached not that God may be glorified in the salvation of sinners, but that the preacher may be applauded. Do you think that will stand the fire test? Never. It will go up in smoke. The beautiful solos and the great charity work done, the personal soul-saving work done, not for God's glory, but for the exaltation of self. Will these stand the fire test? Never. They will go up in smoke. On the night of which I had been speaking in my church, the two leading singers went down to that second meeting and the leading soprano said, a, a beautiful singer, one of the most beautiful singers I've ever heard, I never thought of it before. I don't believe I've sung a solo in my life for God. I sang it for myself. Thank God the fire of God came upon my leading soprano and my leading contralto and I lost them both because they became missionaries. I'd like to lose the whole choir if I could lose them that way. Furthermore, let me say, good work, work done for a good purpose, but done in our own strength and not in the power of the Holy Ghost will not stand the fire test. The sermon preached to glorify God, but preached with the enticing words of man's wisdom and not in demonstration of the spirit and power of God. Will it stand the fire test? Never. So men, women, our work is to be tried regarding its character, regarding its motive, regarding its power in which it is done. Will your work stand the fire? And we come now to the third fire. We read of it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-9. through 9. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that do not know God that do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The third fire is the fire of eternal doom. Every one of us must meet God in fire somewhere. Some of us, I hope, tonight will meet him in the fire of baptism with the Holy Ghost and fire. Some of us, I know, will meet him in that great judgment day when the fire will try our work what sort of is, and oh. Friends, some of us, I fear, God grant that it may be very few, may meet him in the fire of eternal doom. Someone says, do you think it's a literal fire? 
I'm not going to stop to discuss that. Take it as a figure, if you will, but remember that figures always stand for facts. Some people, if they find anything in the Bible that they do not like, they say, it is figurative, and they think that that has swept it all away. Remember, who uses the figures? They are God's figures. And God's figures stand for facts, and God is not a liar, so these figures never overstate the facts they represent. And how terrible must the mental and spiritual agony be described by that figure, if figure be? Were you ever severely burnt? Have you ever seen anyone severely burnt? I have been. How awful must be the spiritual or physical agony, whichever one it is, that is represented by such a terrible figure as fire. The superficial thinker says, oh, I can't believe that. I cannot believe that a merciful God is going to let men go on suffering day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year with no hope. Open your eyes. Look at what's going on right around you in London. Is not God permitting men and women who sin, especially in certain specific forms of sin, to suffer most awful agonies day after day, month after month, year after year, without hope of relief unless they repent? And when that time of possible repentance has passed, and it must pass sometime, when the time of possible repentance has passed and this goes on and on and on ever worse and worse, what have you got left but hell? You don't get rid of hell by getting rid of a Bible or by getting rid of God. Hell is here. Hell is a fact in London tonight. The only change the Bible and God make is that they open a door of hope. And when you banish God and the Bible, the only change you make is that you shut the only door of hope. The infidels are guilty of the amazing folly of trying to close hell by shutting the only door of hope. Hell is here. It is a present day fact. And unless there is repentance and acceptance of Christ, it will be an eternal and endless fact. You say for whom? Listen, rendering vengeance to them that do not know God and for them that do not obey the gospel. First, to them who do not know God. This is plain English for agnostics. You know what agnostic means? A great many people are proud of saying, I am an agnostic. Well, agnostic means know not or know nothing. It is used of those who know not God. So our text says God will render vengeance to agnostics. Someone says, that's not just. Well, I cannot help that. It is a fact, but it is just. You ought to know God. You have no excuse for not knowing God. The most solemn duty that lies upon every man is to find out about God. And there is a way to know God. The trouble is, you don't want to know God. An agnostic that wants to know God will soon get acquainted with him. I was once an agnostic, but I was an honest one. And I didn't take long to find God. Only the other night, a man said to me, I'm an agnostic. I pointed him to a way out of agnosticism, a reasonable way, and asked, isn't that reasonable? And he said, yes. And I said, well, will you try it? And he said, no, I won't. His agnosticism is not his misfortune. It is his sin. The first and most solemn obligation resting on the creature is to know and worship and serve the creator you ought to know God, and if you refuse to know him, the Lord Jesus will be revealed at last, rendering vengeance to you and other agnostics. But not only to agnostics, but to them that do not obey the gospel. 
many a man is not an agnostic, but he doesn't obey the gospel. There are many of you people who would support what I say about agnosticism, but you don't obey the gospel. You do not believe with real faith, which means absolute surrender and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not obey Christ as your Lord and Master. You do not openly confess him as the gospel commands. He will render vengeance to you. You will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Men and women, every one of us must meet God in fire. Ah, oh, tonight you do not, tonight do you not want to meet him in the glorious fire of the Holy Ghost? refining you from sin, cleansing the dross and filth, illuminating you with God's glorious truth, warming the cold heart until it glows with holy love, energizing you with the power of God and spreading wherever it goes? Or do you wish to meet God in fire in the judgment day? That day will try your works about character and motive. <laughs> judgment day that will try your work as to character, motive, the power that rotted and send all your works up in smoke and leave you there stripped, saved so as by fire? Or will you meet God in that awful fire of eternal doom when the day comes that the same Christ whom you have rejected and trampled underfoot comes back again in the glory of the Father with his mighty angels rendering vengeance to them that know not God and obey not the gospel. As you listen to the sermon, you listen to him discuss what kind of things fire does. Fire, I think one of the things that I thought was interesting is when he discusses the idea of what a fire is. It it, it glows, uh, it provides light, it warms, it you know it provides comfort, it spreads, it tells others about Jesus Christ, and then he talks about those three different fires and where people will be and warning what kind of things and situations they'll be. And I think Tori just does a really good job of laying it all out there in a very simplistic way. And I, I don't know about you, but I, I, when I was editing this sermon, it was just what I needed to hear. I actually was, was, I felt like the timing of it was just right for me. Hopefully you listened to it and it was the same for you where this was just what you needed to hear. And I really appreciate that Tori just, there's no other way to do it. It's either you are become a Christian or you're lost forever. This is the only two routes to go make your decision now and get on with it already because the 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 judgment is going to be really steep and it's coming right around the moment. And I really appreciate too how he balanced the idea of fire can be such a good thing and fire can be such a dangerous thing and how it can be at the same time and how he feared that many churches are like those factories where the fire wasn't on and so they had all the right equipment, they had all the right things in place, but the factory's not moving because the fire isn't on yet. And I just, I, I think his picture of that's what he thought the church looked like. So many churches had all the right equipment, all the pieces are in place. Maybe even the workers are standing by, but without that fire, there's nothing going on. And he just really emphasizes if you don't have the Holy Spirit, if you're not moving with God, 
then you're like those factories. You may you may look great, but there's no products going out. So really enjoyed I enjoyed this sermon a lot and for me it was just the right sermon at the right time. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Ed Backel, a regular on this show that we love having. Pastor Ed is a Washington State native. He has taught for 30 plus years in churches in Oregon, Washington, Nebraska, and currently in Warden, Washington. He has been serving Warden Community Church since May of 2010. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, I will ask you very kindly to share it with a friend. Let somebody else know that you're listening to the show and say, hey, maybe you should listen to Revive Thoughts too. It's got lots of great sermons from the past and it's got lots of backstories to help you learn and grow more in your relationship with God. Nothing, honestly, nothing brings us more joy than knowing that people have done that. And I cannot tell you how many times that we read reviews or read comments or read emails and it's not some famous name sharing us because that really doesn't happen too often. Uh, But it's just someone saying, hey, I heard about this show from a friend of mine, and I'm really grateful they shared it. So please get out there and let your friends know uh, what we're doing here at Revive Thoughts, and uh, it'll continue to do it for a long, long time. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.